This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF. When Justice is Aborted, Biblical Standards for Nonviolent Resistance, Gary North, Dominion Press, Fort Worth, Texas, copyright 1989 by Gary North. Chapter 2, The Voice of Lawful Authority. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that are be ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Romans 13, 1-2 Then went the captain with the officers, and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council in the high court, asked them, saying, did not we straightly command thee that ye should not teach in, his, in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Acts five twenty six through 26-29 The apostles resisted the official demand of the religious authorities and the, official, and the civil authorities to cease and desist from preaching in the name of Jesus, a convicted criminal. There is no doubt that this demand was just as the was as just as the conviction of Jesus in the Jewish and Roman courts, or as unjust. Since the apostles resisted lawful authorities, were they in violation of Romans thirteen? If not, then how can we reconcile this apparent contradiction? Both of these passages are in the Bible. The Bible is the very word of God, perfect and authoritative. It tells us that we are suppo- what we're supposed to believe and to do. All people are required to obey God's, by God to obey the Bible, His revealed Word. But especially Christians, this means that Christians must acknowledge, affirm, and obey the principles found in these pass in both passages. This is the Bible talking. Why should Christians be more bound by the Bible than anyone else? Doesn't God hold all people responsible for their actions? He does. But Christians are even more responsible. The Bible teaches that from Him. Who has been given much, much is required. Luke twelve forty eight through forty nine. Therefore, furthermore, Christians have pledged eternal obedience to Jesus Christ, their King, the incarnate second person of the Trinity. They've been baptized in His name, and therefore they are legally under His jurisdiction. This, in fact, is the primary means of baptism. By the way, to place oneself under the judicial authority of God. When someone has been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, he or she has become God's man or God's woman. Once this mark of God's authority and man's subordination has been placed on a person, there can be no legal escape. There are five. These are five. There are five things that we can say confidently about God's relationship to Christians over us. One, God's word is binding. Two, God's covenant authority is binding. Three, the covenant's laws are binding. Four, the sanctions, which are blessings and, cur- and, f- are, uh, and cursings, attached to this covenant are binding. Five, the sanctions are forever. We dare not forget or neglect even one of these five covenant principles. All five are binding on us, and God will hold us eternally accountable for believing and obeying all five. This book does not attempt to set forth the case for the Bible as God's inspired word. The book assumes this about the Bible. However, 
We begin with the second question, the lawful voice of authority. This is the question of representation. Which voice in history speaks authoritatively authoritatively, in the name of the God of the Bible? The Bible teaches that several authorities do. Civil authorities, church authorities, family rulers, and the conscience. All four are God's lawful covenantal agents. All four have been have taken binding oaths, either explicitly or implicitly. Rulers swear to uphold the law, state, church, or family laws. So does each individual. Man either accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or they do not. A decision to reject him is still a decision. In this case, no decision is a decision. A decision against Christ. It may be an implicit decision, but it's still legally binding. For in Adam, we have all sinned already. In Adam, we all explicitly said no to God. God was our lawful covenantal representative, as mentioned earlier. The meaning of individual baptism is the affirmation of the legally binding nature of God's covenant. Thus, the individual Christian's conscience is lawfully bound, is is a lawful voice of authority. The Bible teaches that there is only one absolute sovereign authority, and that is God. There is only one absolute sovereign voice of authority, the Bible. It is the responsibility of each subordinately sovereign lawful authority to conform himself to these two ultimate sovereigns. But civil authorities in history have rarely been willing to do this. The result has been injustice generation after generation. The universal dilemma of conflicting lawful authorities. Every society and every organization in man's history has faced the same sort of dilemmas that Christians see in Romans 13, 1 through 2 and Acts 5, 26 through 29. Every society every and every organization needs stability in order to function properly. This means that there must be a lawful chain of command in every organization. There must be a hierarchy. Someone is always held responsible by someone else above him. There is no escape from hierarchy. The only questions are who runs it, who issues the orders, and what ultimate so- in, in what ultimate sovereign's name, and who enforces the organization's rules. This means inescapably that every organization is under the authority of someone or some group of people who will from time to time do evil things or ask their subordinates to do evil things. Men are sinners. Thus, the subordinate in any organization will eventually come to a crisis. Should he obey a superior when a superior tells him to do something that the subordinate regards as morally or legally wrong? Or should the subordinate listen to his conscience? This raises another question. By which voice is God speaking to the person? Through his own conscience or through the voice of his superiors? Soldiers in battles face these decisions. Middle management people in business face it. Bureaucrats in government organizations face it. It it is not confined to Christians. And it is not confined to civil governments. The question is, who best represents God's moral will in any given situation? The answer is difficult to determine. Good men will argue about the answer. They even argue about how to find the answer. But the fact remains in history. Men face this sort of decision all over the world. It is a familiar problem throughout history and every society. It is the question of lawful authority and lawful obedience.
Normally, people believe that mutiny is wrong, especially during wartime. We all agree that a military commander in a battle must be obeyed. Lives of other people depend on the faithful obedience of a commander's subordinates. Yet the legal authorization of mutiny, indeed the legal obligation of subordinates to mutiny, was affirmed by modern humanist international law during the Nuremberg trials of German military leaders following World War II. The legal right to answer to answer to the court, I was just following orders, was removed from all defendants. High military officials were sentenced to death and executed by this international tribunal for having failed to mutiny against Hitler and the German high command. This has been called victor's justice. But it is now the legal precedent that military officers face. This precedent may make it difficult for future wars to be settled peaceably short of the unconditional surrender of one side. Leaders of the losing side may decide they have nothing to lose by continuing the war, hoping for a miraculous turn of events. Thus, there is no escape from the dilemma of moral choice. Therefore, even in this seemingly obvious case, the question of military mutiny, civil courts present citizens with the same two seemingly opposing legal and moral standards that we find in Romans 13 and Acts 5. Yet these standards are not in principle opposed. The Bible is true. God's word is not inconsistent. Both principles are true. Obey lawful authorities, plural, the text indicates, and obey God rather than man. Similarly, a chain of military command needs both rules, obedience to commanders, yet also the right of subordinates to disobey unlawful or immoral orders. In fact, an army that did not allow wide discretion to its subordinate officers and troops would be paralyzed. The general and staff would have to know everything perfectly in order for them to issue absolute, absolutely binding orders. No army that required absolute obedience could win a war. There, would always, there always has to be discretion down the chain of command. The sergeant who is told by the lieutenant, take your men up the front of that hill and capture it, may discover on the battlefield that he cannot obey this two-part order. He may believe that his men are able to capture the hill, but not if they go up the front. He has to make a quick decision here, which is the more fundamental order, capturing the hill or going up the front. Most of us would assume that unless we were explicitly told otherwise, the senior commander wants to capture the hill, not see his troops get slaughtered by dutifully going up the front. So the sergeant acts accordingly. He may be court-martialed later, but to get himself court-martialed, he first has to come back alive. Better to come back alive, preferably after having captured the hill. This brings us to one of the more important laws of military justice. There are a few things better than a victory on the battlefield if you want to avoid being court-martialed. This rule of thumb also governs all other human courts of justice. Ours is a created world. We are all creatures. We cannot know things perfectly and in the way that God in the way that God knows them. Thus, when we are issued an order from on high, meaning an order from a higher up, we have to ask ourselves, how should this order be obeyed? Furthermore, we must ask, is there a higher order from someone even higher up the chain of command? In short, is my commander being obedient to the orders that he has received from his commander? Let us forget, not forget, or let us never forget. The highest commander of all is God. The Doctrine of Interposition.
Christians must protest against injustice. This is basic to evangelism. If we preach against sin, then we must preach against injustice. But how is this to be done biblically? It must be done re- representatively. The Christian who gets involved in an organized protest against civil injustice is acting as a covenantal agent on someone else's behalf. He is interposing himself and his associates in between a corrupt civil government and its innocent victims. This is why... We say that he is acting representatively. Thus, before Christians join such a protest or movement, we should have some idea about the biblical doctrine of representation. This doctrine, if properly understood, leads to another doctrine, the doctrine of inter the doctrine of interposition. The biblical doctrine of representation begins with the concept of the covenant, the foundation of all lawful government. Now, it should be obvious that the most important representative agent in man's history is Jesus Christ, was Jesus Christ, who interposed himself in between God the Father and rebellious humanity. Without this interposition, there would never have been history. On the day that Adam sinned, God would have killed him body and soul. It is only because God looked forward in history to Jesus Christ's act of interposition that he spared this, the family of man. This was an interposition of grace between God's sovereign justice and judicially guilty mankind, for man deserved to die. Jesus Christ interposed himself judicially and physically. How much more should Christians become involved in interposition between injustice and judicially innocent victims? Before we consider in greater detail the biblical doctrine of interposition, we need to understand the concept of covenantal government. See, Such government is always hierarchical. Once we understand how covenantal government operates, we can then discuss on what basis an individual can interpose himself judicially and physically in between unjust government and its judicially innocent victims. Self-government directly under God. See, each person is responsible before God for everything he says and does in his lifetime. Jesus warns us, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment, Matthew twelve thirty six. Thus a person's conscience is a lawful authority. The fundamental rule of government is self-government under God's law. The primary enforcing agent is the conscience. No other human government possesses the God-given authority or the God-given resources to police every aspect of each person's daily walk before God. Any government that attempts this is inherently tyrannical. When a person faces God on Judgment Day, there'll be no committee beside him to take the rap. Only Jesus Christ can do this for a person as God's lawful, authorized authority who died in place of a God-redeemed individual. There'll be no one else except Jesus Christ at the throne of judgment. Who can lawfully intervene and tell God the judge, this person was following my orders and therefore should not be prosecuted. (laughs) Therefore, the fundamental representative voice of God's authority is each person's life and his own conscience. Because the individual will face God on judgment day. This is basic to Christian ethics, social, and legal theory. Any society that attempts to deny this principle of justice is in revolt against God. Now, this is not to say that a person's conscience is absolutely sovereign. There has been no single God-authorized human voice of absolute authority on earth since the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. The conscience is a person's primary voice of authority. But a wise person will defer to other God-ordained human authorities. The Bible is clear about this. There is a division of labor, of labor 
in every area of life, including the proper interposing of God's law. The Church of Jesus Christ is a body with many members, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Paul in Ephesians writes, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, May we grow up into him into all things, which is the head, even Christ, and from whom the whole body, being fitted, joined together, and, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the, edif in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Ephesians 4, 11-16. We are told that where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Proverbs eleven fourteen. Thus, no person's conscience is autonomous. Auto equals self. Noos equals law. The conscience is the primary authority under God because any act of rebellion against God by a person's conscience will be held against that person in God's perfect court of justice. It is not the sole authority under God. We're but our conscience is reliable. Well, we're told by Paul, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, Romans 2, 14-15a. Understand, the law of God is not said to be written on their hearts. Only the work of the law is written there. It is only regenerate people who have the law of God itself written on their hearts. Hebrews 8, 9-10 and 10, 16. Nevertheless, the work of the law testifies against all men when they rebel against God's law. They know better. The redeemed person in principle knows best, but the unregenerate at least knows better when he sins. The human conscience is not perfect in, it, in its transmission of God's warnings. Its signals can be ignored by a person for so long that he or she no longer responds. Paul calls this a seared conscience. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the truth, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. 1 Timothy 4 through 12, 1 through 12, 2, 1 and 2. Christians do not take these words literally, of course. We do not believe that a literal hot iron can sear a person's conscience. Paul was using a metaphor. A bleeding wound can be sealed upon, sealed up by applying a hot iron to it, but the nerve endings beneath the skin may be permanently destroyed. The person may lose all feeling on the seared portion of his flesh, so it is with sin. If false doctrines or evil acts are indulged in, they can sear the conscience. No longer will the individual hear the warning voice of God. Again, this is not a literal voice. The conscience is representatively the voice of God, but it is nonetheless conscience, not literally a voice. Self-government under church authority. 
God has ordained the church as his lawful monopoly uh, that governs the distribution and therefore the withholding of the sacraments. Like any God-ordained sovereign government, the church is run hierarchically. There is a chain of command. This is not top-down bureaucratic chain of command. God has established a system of multiple bottom-up appeals, courts, church, state, and and family. Um, These appeals court structure is seen... um, in the civil government's court procedure described in Exodus 18 and also in the church government's court proceeding described in Matthew 18, 15 through 18. In contrast to God's appeals court hierarchy, Satan runs a top-down chain of command. In a bureaucracy, the leader issues orders that must be obeyed. He runs the bureaucracy the way a general runs an army during a war. But a general during a war is made personally responsible for the success or failure of the life and death military operations. This level of personal responsibility does not prevail in peacetime when civilian rule against become, again becomes the standard. Also, the focus of a war is narrow military victory. This concentration of national and personal focus is narrow, unlike in peacetime society. Thus, a bureaucratic approach to institutional rule is suitable temporarily during a war, but it is not the organizational standard in a free society when each person is made personally responsible for f- fulfilling God's command to subdue the earth, Genesis 1, 26-28. Bureaucracies cannot make full use of the division of labor principle except when the assigned task of the organization is very narrow and universally accepted by a large majority of citizens. Satan is not all-seeing or all-powerful. So he has to issue commands to a massive bureaucracy of both human and demonic followers to a mass, uh, you know, but even and yet even he cannot issue perfect commands. Even he has to allow for some latitude in his subordinates, literal obedience. He is a creature. He seeks to compensate for his lack of omniscience by strengthening the power of his bureaucracy. Church government, like family government and civil government, is always hierarchical. There are officers in a church, deacons and elders. They have to meet exacting. They have to meet exacting moral and family discipline requirements in order to serve as officers. One Timothy three, church officers are required to settle disputes that arise between church members. First Corinthians six, but the appeals usually arise from below. The leaders of the church, being voluntary, in contrast to minor children in a family, must lead by example. They do not issue commands, except when formally deciding a case brought to them. They announce God's law from the pulpit. The church can lawfully initiate a covenant lawsuit against rebellious members, but a church that does discontinually will not hold its members. Cults are marked by continual top-down monitoring. Churches are marked by self-government under God's law. Churches are sometimes organized as independent congregations. Rare is the local church, however, that is not connected in some way to an association of other churches with similar beliefs. Sometimes churches are organized hierarchically as denominations, that is, hierarchically. The the chain of command is formal. Higher governmental bodies are allowed to impose discipline on individuals through the subordinate authority of their local churches. But there can be no church apart from some sort of hierarchical discipline any more than there can be an army without some hierarchical discipline which church to join this is why an individual should not join a church 
whose judicial authority he does not trust. When he joins, he places himself under this authority. He's required to join in order to take communion, a God-ordained, God-required sacrament. The church's official final office, official act of discipline is excommunication, separation from ex equal out of communion. Thus, every Christian is required by God to belong to a church, for without membership there can be no discipline. Without discipline there can be no army of the Lord and no government. The conscience is not a sufficient voice of authority. There must be a multitude of counselors. Proverbs eleven fourteen. A person must decide through the testimony of his conscience which doctrines and practices are most important in God's hierarchy of values, and he must then join that church which adheres most closely to this set of values. This is not a denial of conscience. It is an affirmation of conscience. The conscience is a person is a person's representative voice of God when he chooses which church to join. After joining, he transfers some of his, this authority over his conscience to the church government and away from self-government. In much the same way that a woman transfers a degree of authority over her conscience from her father to her husband when she marries. She does this. She makes this decision under God. Marriage is not a denial of her rights of conscience, but rather an affirmation of these rights. Similarly, colonial Americans transferred varying degrees of sovereignty to the national civil government in 1788 when they ratified the U.S. Constitution. They did not abdicate their conscience, but they did abdicate any uh, pre pretensions of possessing autonomous conscience. In order to affirm the rights of conscience, God tells us to choose which church we will obey. He brings us under authority, but not apart from our individual consciences. If we find that we have made a bad choice and the church we selected is in fact not obeying God the way we believe it should, then we may, then we may transfer membership. We may not become autonomous, for this is a denial of God's law. We are told by God to join a church, but we must allow our conscience to be our guide under the overall authority of God's Spirit and God's revealed Word, the Bible. The ultimate uh, self-government under civil authority. The ultimate lawful authority to inflict physical and all other sanctions belong to God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Romans twelve nineteen b he delegates his authority to families over young children and to civil governments. Romans 13 makes it clear that an individual is always under some form of civil government. The civil magistrate is actually called the minister of God, verse 4. The minister of civil justice possesses lawful authority to impose physical punishments on those under state, the state's jurisdictions. Individuals are not to inflict corporal punishments on others, except in the case of parents punishing their minor children and school teachers or other parent-designated authorities who do the same as lawful representatives of the parents, renouncing state jurisdiction. The Bible, therefore, teaches that men are under the lawful authorities of one or more civil governments, as in church government. This judicial authority is supposed to be enforced hierarchically on an appeals court basis. The civil law is given to man by God through the state in order to establish boundaries of lawful individual and corporate behavior. The biblical legal principle is this, whatsoever is not forbidden is allowed. As Adam in the garden, who could lawfully eat from any other tree in the garden except one, so is man allowed by civil law anything he wants that is not expressly prohibited in the Bible or implicitly prohibited by the application of a biblical principle. Civil government, like church government, 
imposes restraints on evil behavior. Its role is to keep men from doing evil acts, not to make men good. It is supposed to impose negative sanctions against evil behavior. The state is not an agency of personal salvation. It's not supposed to save men. It is, a, it is to protect them from the evil acts of other men. The individual is supposed to possess the God-given legal right to remove himself from the jurisdiction of any civil government uh, that he believes to be immoral because civil governments rule over geographical areas. The act of renouncing jurisdiction is normally accomplished through personal immigration. Till World War I, the right of legal immigration out of a nation, almost universal immigration into a nation, was honored in Europe and North America. Very few nations required passports. Because of the difficulty of moving, especially uh, prior to the invention of the steam engine, ships and trains, God has established other means of renouncing jurisdiction. One of these is the right of revolution. This lawful, this right is lawful only when conducted by lesser magistrates who've been raised up by God to challenge immoral rulers. The book of Judges deals with this right of revolution by lesser magistrates and national leaders who revolt against foreign invaders who have established long-term rule. Legitimate Deceptions of Unjust Rulers Another of these God-given alternatives to departing physically is the right of civil disobedience. Men refuse to obey unjust laws. The obvious biblical example of this is the revolt of the Hebrew midwives against Pharaoh. They refused to carry out his order to kill all the male babies. They lied to him about this extra rapid delivery of Hebrew, win uh, Hebrew women, uh, Exodus 119. A lie so obviously preposterous that only a man blinded by God could have believed it. After all, if the wives were delivered so the wives were delivered so rapidly, of what possible use could a midwife be? There, there could be no such thing as a midwife. Then God blessed them in this act of rebellion. Acts one twenty. Notice that they did not re inquire with any civil magistrate regarding the lawfulness of their acts of defiance. There was no indication that they checked with the elders of Israel. They simply began to resist the murderous plans of the Pharaoh with the only tool available to them, lying. There was no biblical requirement that they gain formal public support from a lower magistrate since they were not taking up arms against the state. They were not violent in any way against lawful authority. They resisted peacefully, so they did not need the approval of any civil magistrate. Similarly, similar acts of civil disobedience, acts of treason, in fact, were committed by Rahab. First, she committed treason by covenanting to the God of Israel through the spies. Ultimately, whenever a Christian covenants with God, he has committed an act of treason against the powers that be, unless Christians are these powers. Secondly, she hid the Hebrew spies. Third, she sent them on their way. Fourth, she remained behind under geographical jurisdiction of the city of Jericho in order to fool the rulers. Fifth, she lied to the Jericho authorities about their whereabouts. Joshua 2, God then blessed her. Her whole family survived the fall of Jericho. In fact, she actually became part of the Davidic line, and her name is mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Matthew 1, 5. These very acts of obeying God made them outlaws, if by law we mean the law of the civil government that they were under, but because of the nature of the public rebellion of the civil rulers against God, treason against the government was obedience to God.
The Hebrew midwives and Rahab took grave risks. They might have been executed. This risk was inescapable given the nature of the reception. To have fled would have been either impossible, the midwives in Egypt, or self-defeating Rahab's subsequent deception of the rulers. This raises a very important point that must be understood very clearly before anyone chooses to involve himself in similar acts of civil disobedience. These women placed themselves under the threat of external civil sanctions. This was the price of a successful rebellion. To have avoided these risks, they would have had to flee. Their unwillingness to flee placed them under the rebellious state's sanctions. They might have been executed, but they faced this danger without visible flinching. In fact, their courage must have been part of the success of their plan of civil disobedience. Had they shown fear, their lives might have been detected. Only because they did not show fear did the rulers accept their lies as true. The Biblical Justification for Lying The Bible says that Christians should not lie to each other. Wherefore, putting away, lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Ephesians 4.25 but this does not this does not rule out but this rule does not always prevail in dealings between civil governments or between governments and their citizens for example citizen civil governments certainly believe in the legitimacy of military lying and so they train and send out spies and they camouflage troops and weapons moses sent spies into canaan before the invasion numbers 14 joshua had been one of the spies under moses did the same a generation later joshua 2 are we to say that such decisions by military governments are morally wrong? If so, then why did God allow Moses and Joshua to send out spies to spy out the land of Canaan? In times such as these, as today, days filled with life and death crises, Christians had better not be naive about such matters. If Christians are morally required by God to avoid lying to the civil government in all cases, then on what moral basis did Christians in, not in, your, in Europe hide Jews in their homes during the terror of the Nazis? If you have any qualms about accepting the idea of self-conscious lying as a legitimate part of civil disobedience, please consider the following passages in the Bible to see how God deliberately lies to unjust rulers and false prophets in order to bring them low. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And, no, and, and one said on this matter, and another said on that matter. And then there came forth a spirit, and stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and, pre- and prevail also. Go forth, and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all their, thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. 1 Kings 22, 20, verse 23. For every one of the house of Israel, or of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, which separateth himself from me, and setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him 
by myself and I will set my face against that man and I will make him a sign and a proverb and I will cut him off from, from the midst of my people and ye shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet be deceived that when he hath spoken a thing, I the Lord have deceived that prophet and I will stretch out my hand upon him and I will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel and they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeketh unto him. Ezekiel 14, 7 through 10. The relevant New Testament passage is 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusions, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Are we to say that we cannot do likewise under any circumstances? Are we supposed to be holier than God? People who try to be holier than God wind up like Satan initially tyrannical and then impotent. Another case in the Bible of someone who broke the law of the state was Jehoshaphat, uh, who saved the life of the infant heir to the throne, Joash. And when Athaliah, the mother of Azahiah, saw her, that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Azekiah, took jo Joash, the son of Azekiah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain. And they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. 2 Kings 11, 1-2. By whose authority did she do this? By her own under God. She took the baby to God's house, which served as a sanctuary for him, until he came of age. And he, and, he, and he was with her, hid in the house of the Lord six years. And Athaliah did reign over the land. Second Kings 11.3 There was no lower civil magistrate involved here. The senior officer of the church took full responsibility for this revolt against civil authority. Does might make right? God brought negative sanctions in history against Egypt and Jericho. God also brought positive sanctions in history to the midwives in Rahab. This proves that God's civil government, the civil aspect of God's universal kingdom, is alone absolutely sovereign, and, and earthly civil governments are hierarchically subordinate to God's kingdom rule. The civil government that imposes final sanctions in history and eternity is the absolute sovereign civil government in history and eternity. This does not mean that might makes right. It means that God is right. God is mighty, and the kings of the earth will bow down to him. It was not the task of the midwives, or Rahab, to attempt to force the king of their day to bow down to God. They were not required or authorized by God to bring visible negative sanctions against these rebellious rulers. These women were not civil rulers themselves. They had no legal authority to bring negative physical sanctions against those in office over them. Vengeance was God's, as it is today, but they were required by God to act as law-abiding, righteous people by lying to the rulers, uh, confusing them, and thwarting their proclamations. Then God brought the rulers low. When Paul was brought before the Roman council in Jerusalem, the room was filled with Jewish religious leaders who were in fact subordinate rulers to Roman civil authority. They had already ad admitted this in public at the most judicially critical point in Israel's history, the crucifixion of Christ the Messiah, when they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. John 19, 
15. The Jewish leaders were divided between Pharisees who believed in the resurrection of the dead at Judgment Day, as the Old Testament taught, Daniel 12, 1-3, while the Sadducees who ruled the temple rejected this doctrine. So when Paul testified to the Roman authorities, he told them the truth, the partial truth, and everything but the whole truth. He announced that he was on trial because he was a Pharisee and believed in the resurrection. Yes, he was a Pharisee by birth. Yes, he believed in the resurrection, first of Jesus Christ, then of the Christians, then of the unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 15. This was hardly orthodox pharisaical doctrine, but he neglected to mention these minor doctrinal qualifications. Immediately, the two Jewish factions began screaming against each other, and the meeting broke up, Acts 22, 6-10. Thus, he escaped civil judgment that day. The moral and legal dilemma arises when there is a conflict between these lawful voices of authority. One or more of these god uh, authorized voices of law, of lawful authority may issue commands that are in conflict with God's Bible revealed law. Well, what is the Christian supposed to do? We have seen that all covenantal government is hierarchical. Someone or some lawful agency must speak in the name of the God of that society or group. Biblically, men are required by God to speak only in his name, according to his revelation of himself in the Bible and in history. Because rulers often refuse to acknowledge that God is above them, they refuse to speak in God's name. They become representatives of another God. This makes decisions far more complex for Christians. Should they obey God or the civil magistrate? They must obey God. But as in all of the decisions in life, there are levels of importance in decision making. Some issues are more important than others. The human conscience needs earthly counsel in sorting out God's hierarchy of values and the hierarchy of assigned responsibilities that God presents to each person moment by moment. You know, we cannot fight every evil, right every wrong. We are creatures. We have limits on our lives. Thus, we must seek out our own specialized areas of service to God, which includes our own specialized areas of resistance to rebellious authority. Different people will regard different services as the first and foremost, which others will not see so clearly. People also learn. They change their minds. Christian activists must be patient with other Christians in these matters, especially regarding timing. We live in a world governed by the principle of the division of of intellectual labor. Success in competition often tells us which tactic was best, but only after the fact. Tactical questions and strategic questions in wartime battle, um, uh, in wartime, baffle the best of generals. And so, and daily living is surely more complex than mere military conflict. So, patience is basic to successful Christian recruiting and mobilization in evangelism, surely, but also in Christian activism. When an individual decides what his priorities are, meaning what God's priorities are in his life, he must act in accordance with his conscience. You know, uh, he must uh, he must march forward. If a Christian lives in a pagan culture, then his long-term goal should be the undermining of the present order and its replacement 
with a righteous order. This is the biblical concept of the leaven principle, Matthew thirteen thirty three. Evil must be replaced by goods. Uh, you cannot beat something with nothing. You must have a positive program. You cannot fight every evil, fight every fight, or right every wrong, or save every life. We must pick and choose. Uh, you know our tactical confrontations in terms of an overall strategy. We may concentrate our limited resources in one city, one project, one person. We do this because we believe in the biblical doctrine of representation. We understand the use of symbols. We can hinder or stop a representative evil locally. Uh, if we can hinder or stop a representative equal evil locally, then we thereby give visible warning to our enemies and visible encouragement to our allies. So choose your allies well. Most important, choose your leaders well. Do your best not to go into public confrontations with your family and church against you, as well as the state. Subordinate yourself to God through his lawful institutions. If your pastor and your elders are opposed to what you're doing to challenge the state, it is time to start looking for a new church. In summary... Christians are called upon to obey the civil government, Romans 13, 1 through 8, but also to disobey evil laws, Acts 5 through 29. Two, we are baptized into God's covenant. Three, the covenant's five principles are binding on us. Four, the question of the lawful voice of authority is the question of lawful representation. Only God and the Bible are absolutely sovereign. Every society needs hierarchy. The question is, who runs it? Every hierarchy will eventually ask people to do something immoral or illegal. Nine, who represents God in such situations? Ten, men must obey lawful authorities, plural. Eleven, orders usually have more than one goal. Subordinates must determine which is more fundamental. Thirteen, God is the supreme commander. The Bible teaches the doctrine of judicial interposition. 15. This also can involve bodily interposition. 16. The crucifixion displayed both aspects. Each person is directly responsible under God. Each person will be judged individually by God at the final judgment. 19. The representation between God and man is the human conscience. Each person is under God's direct authority. 21. His own conscience is his representative for God. 22. No conscience is autonomous. 23. The work of the law is written on all hearts, though not the law itself. 24. Some consciences are seared by evil. 25. God's church supplements the human conscience. 26. The church's hierarchy is a bottom-up appeals court. 27. Satan's bureaucracy is a top-down command system. 28. An individual must decide for himself which church is closest to God's hierarchy of value and requirements. 29. He must do the same with civil government. 30. God's rule is whatever is not forbidden is allowed. 31. God can, people can lawfully protest a civil violation of God's law. 32. They can lawfully use deception as a means of circumventing a biblically immoral law. 33. Permission of low, lower magistrates is not required for nonviolent resistance. 34. God is right and he possesses absolute might. 35. Honest men disagree regarding 
God's hierarchy of values. 36. They disagree over tactics and timing. 37. There is inevitable, this is inevitable in a division of labor world. 38. We should choose our allies in terms of our assessment of both principles and tactics. Slash law, dominion. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.